Raised by Spirit, Chapter 3 Motherhood and Loss Our oldest son, Jeremy, was born nine months later at age 19. My dad had fully accepted Twiggy into the family with open arms, and they became best friends in a very short period of time. My dad had opened a construction company for Twiggy and my sister's husband in effort to make sure his daughters were taken care of by the men they chose. But when Jeremy came into this world, he came in literally kicking and screaming. He was born two weeks after his due date and personally, I don't think he wanted to come out. The first night we brought him home, we walked past his pack and play and his hand was sticking up with his middle finger out like, fuck you, I'm here. He was born with a double hernia, asthma, and a birthmark on his chest, and it really wasn't until he was almost two months old did we realize he even had a hernia, but it definitely explained why he was crying ten times more than a child with colic would. Immediately after we realized he had a hernia, he had surgery, and the only thing that remained at this point was his asthma and his birthmark. Like some moms do, we just sit and we stare at our babies in loving astonishment of the glory of our creation. And I remember looking at his birthmark one day and I heard my grandmother say, his birthmark is why he has asthma, and that's how he died in a past life. And it was from an arrow wound to the heart. And that was it. I remember my dad had came over one night when Jeremy was just a baby, and he was sitting in the living room telling stories like he always did. And at one point, he just stopped, and he looked at me and he said, I'm so proud of you. You know you have to have another baby, right? And I was like, the fuck I do. He goes on to explain that I had to have at least one more child so that they would always have each other after Twiggy and I were long gone. I mean, I understood what he was trying to say, but Jeremy wasn't even a year old at this point and I definitely wasn't ready to have another child. He would always talk about all the things he was going to do with his grandsons when they got old enough, and when he talked about that, he was in his glory. When my dad started the construction company, he invested his entire life savings with the intention to build the business for his future son-in-laws so that they would be able to provide for his daughters and his grandsons. Unfortunately, my sister's husband at the time wasn't too far off when it came to comparing him to our womanizing grandfathers and their cycle of mistreating their wives. In fact, in my opinion, her ex-husband is worse, but that's not my journey to judge nor story to tell. However, because of him and a few other things, the construction company did fail. One of the only things my father ever failed at, at least in his mind. In my opinion, my father never failed once at anything he did. But with no savings at 52 years old, my father ended up returning to manual labor as a heavy machine operator. It was at that time my husband started working with his best friend, John. Now John, like my father and my husband, held an iconic presence all his own. It really did depend on who you are that dictated the type of relationship you had with John. To me, he was like a big brother. A sometimes very annoying big brother, sure, but big brother nonetheless. To my husband, they were brothers from another mother. There was nothing they wouldn't do for each other, and I literally mean nothing. To outsiders, someone looking at John without a higher awareness of his purpose and journey would absolutely judge him as a bad person, because the reality is, he didn't always make the best choices. John lived a very difficult life, repeating how he grew up throughout his adult life. Again, we're all just products of our parents and their choices. Our childhood and upbringing therein will have a huge role to play on the way we live out our lives, unless we make different choices. Nonetheless, John's choices and chosen lifestyle had zero effect on the relationship he and I had. John accepted me because of Twiggy. What Twiggy cared about, John cared about. Bottom line. John did really care about us. There really wasn't anything whatsoever he wouldn't do for us. It was, yet again, just another example of unconditional love. We could pick up the phone day or night, and he'd be there, ready to help however he could, which generally would have consisted in beating the shit out of somebody. He was just a bad motherfucker with a heart of gold. 
John moved in with us about two months after Jeremy was born and stayed for about six months or so, and those were some of the best and worst memories I personally shared with him. At the time, being 19 and my husband 25 with a newborn baby, things were difficult to say the least. My husband was the sole provider of finances working in construction mainly. We had very little money at the time, and it was inconsistent money at that. So John and my husband would pursue other outlets to bring in additional cash. Before my husband and I had got together, like I said before, he and I lived very different lifestyles. He was the party and John was the supplier. And though I wasn't aware of it at the time, my husband had a very serious drinking problem. It was never noticeable nor a problem though until the stress of having to provide for a family had unfolded. And this became the reason why he drank as much as he did. And believe me, it was a lot. There were nights when John and my husband would go out to do God knows what, I was purposely withheld the details on what exactly they were doing, and rightfully so. Regardless, they would definitely be drinking while they were gone doing whatever they were doing. There were several nights they just didn't come home until morning. Even though, at the time, I didn't know the details, knowing their past history together, it really didn't take a psychic to figure it out. So I would freak out when they wouldn't come home. I would call all the local bars, the hospitals, the holding centers, trying to figure out if they were okay or in jail or why they weren't coming home. This resulted in several heated arguments between me and my husband, but never once between me and John. Like I said before, John didn't always make the best choices. He was well known and fearless, yes, but to a fault. He got involved with some really dangerous people and heroin while he lived with us. This was the beginning of the end for John. My husband was placed in a very difficult situation. His best friend was going down the path he knew he had to shield his wife and son from. It was different when it was just him and John, but it wasn't just about them anymore. Plus, John never wanted to be a part of something that was tearing his best friend and his best friend's family apart. That was something he proved to us many times. See, John had four kids of his own with his wife, Rochelle, and due to John's choices and lifestyle choice, his relationship with his children and in his family, it wasn't ideal. John wasn't legally allowed to live with his kids due to these choices, but he loved his family the best way he knew how. Most certainly, he wasn't going to allow his choices to cause harm upon his best friend's family too. So nearing the six months after John moved in, that's why he moved out. Under the circumstances, my husband made it quite clear to John that he and I were not supportive of those choices he was making, and that of course we'd always love him, but now we had a child to make decisions for now. There was never any hard feelings, like I said. John understood this, and we loved each other without condition. Nothing could ever change that, not then and not now. A few months after that, we moved for the third time since renting our first apartment, this time renting a house. Things were okay here for a brief moment in time. Money was still tight, but there wasn't as much drama occurring. I was enjoying being a mom, and my relationship with my mom was better. My parents would come over for dinner pretty frequently, and I loved spending time with my dad. It was like we were finally at the level of a father-daughter relationship where we had adult conversations. His stories weren't as child-friendly, you could say, and his advice he relayed was on a much deeper level. With my dad returning to heavy machinery, still the sole financial provider, they continued to struggle financially, never really seeming to grasp an ability to bounce back from the failed investment and loss of his construction company. In October of 2003 is when my dad got sick. It started with a simple cold. He was a stubborn man as you can tell at this point and he was a provider. So missing work because of a cold wasn't an option. But this cold turned into pneumonia and still he went to work, refusing to go to the doctors. I never thought I would receive the phone call I did November 9th, 2003. To me, my father was indestructible. There was nothing that could take him out. My mother called me that morning and said that my dad had a heart attack 
and that they were headed to the hospital by ambulance. I couldn't tell you how fast I drove, but it was as fast as I could go. When I got to the hospital, my mom was in the waiting room, just beside herself to say the least. Just a few minutes after I arrived, they came out to tell us that he was brain dead and in a coma. A lot of that in the beginning was a blur, but a few hours later, they had my dad in the ICU unit. He was unresponsive and on a ventilator. That night I went home to go sleep as my mom stayed by his side. She told me the next morning that she went to lay down in the waiting room at one point and she said she heard my father clear as day say, I'm at peace. Unfortunately at that point my mom was not willing to accept this as the end. Within the first three days of my dad being in the ICU unit, the doctors explicitly said that he was brain dead and he was last on the list to be taken care of because of that. The doctors also advised us that it would be in our best interest for us to say our goodbyes now as they didn't expect him to survive long on the ventilators, much less wake up. So one by one, we went in the room to say our goodbyes. When I went into the room to say goodbye, I apologized for all the things that I may have done that ever caused him any pain. I told him that I loved him more than anything in the entire world and if there was anything that I could do to make him wake up and be healthy, that I would do it without questions, that I would not have any more children and I would take care of them for the rest of my life. But I promised that if he had to go that it was okay and that I would take care of my mom for him, that his grandchildren would know him through all the stories he told throughout my life and I would make sure that. I held his big ass hand while sobbing saying all these things to him and when I looked up tears were flowing down both of his cheeks. Even though his eyes were closed supposedly being unresponsive that didn't seem to be the case so I immediately asked him if he could hear me just squeeze my hand and sure as shit he did. He then intuitively told me not to worry because he was not in pain that his soul had already left the body that it was not time for his body to rest that he was waiting for my mother's okay that just like a baby goes in and out of the mother womb he can return to the body that lay before me at any point in time that I would understand in time that he loved me my sister and my mother and that there was nothing not even death that could separate us from him you would think that such a grand gesture of reassurance would make me feel better I can assure you it did not in time as usual it did make sense and it does make you feel better though there are some things no matter what you're just going to miss you're going to miss the hugs you're going to miss the stories you're going to miss the laughter you're going to miss the physical experiences and memories being made it was about a week after my dad got admitted into the hospital when I moved my mother in the house with myself my husband and Jeremy she wasn't there very much because she spent every waking moment by his side making sure that he was taken care of seeing as the doctors said that he would be last on the list to be taken care of and she would be damned if that was the case I remember she would come home and sit at the kitchen table and just cry she said things like I don't understand why God isn't listening to me she would mumble things like this was her fault because she should have become a missionary and that God was punished her for falling in love with him and not spreading God's word all of which couldn't be further from the truth at one point her and I were sitting outside and she looked at me and she said that this would happen to me someday and I looked her dead in her soul and I assured her it would not about three months into my father's coma on February 3rd 2004 my husband and I were awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call from Michelle. John had been murdered and left behind an alley to die at the young age of 32. Not only the same age his father passed away, but similar to his father's passing. But we'll gain more understanding of that much later. John's passing was absolutely devastating to my husband. John was the man of steel, and now we had to say goodbye to him. Throughout my father's time in the hospital, his once apparent awareness while being in a coma began to fade. The original hospital he was admitted in no longer wanted to care for him, 
and they made this quite clear three months prior. But with my parents on state-provided health care, this factor weighed heavily on the hospital's outlook on whether or not he should be cared for or not. Three or four months after his heart attack, they told my mother he needed to go into a nursing home. At first, they said that she had no choice as to where he would be placed due to his health insurance provider and that they were going to transfer him to Maine. That was not going to happen, not if we had anything to do with it. So instead, we found him a local nursing home to be transferred to. We all knew that this wasn't the best choice. We all knew he never wanted to be in a nursing home. Day by day, night by night, my mom stayed by his side, no matter where he was located. Unfortunately, when she was not at the nursing home, he was not cared for whatsoever, worse than the original hospital. With his current health situation and now being in a nursing home, it became quite apparent he was declining fast. He wasn't in the nursing home very long, and he ended up being transferred back to a different local hospital. And about two weeks before my father passed away in the beginning of May 2004, I dreamt of him. There wasn't much to the dream. He stood before me in the impeccable presence that he always held while holding a baby wrapped in a blue blanket. He then tossed me the baby like a football, and I woke up. My sister had a dream around the same time, except when he came to her, they were able to make amends. See, my sister is also a carbon copy of my father in so many different ways than he and I. Unfortunately, it weighed heavier on their relationship than it did for me and my dad. Different lessons for different children, but never a difference in love. Nearing my parents' 33rd wedding anniversary at 2.35 in the morning, which just so happens to be the same time they were married just 33 short years prior, my mother finally told my father that she would be okay and that he could go. And that day on May 17, 2004, at 2.35 a.m., my father passed away. I couldn't even begin to describe the feeling of loss I felt when I received the phone call that he was gone. That man was everything to me. Have you ever received a phone call before that was so devastating you just dropped to your knees because you couldn't even stand up? That's what I did. I just cried. I went and I grabbed my grandmother's blanket and I laid on the floor and I sobbed. No one came through at this time of absolute despair. Not Orion, not Cora, not Maggie, not John. No one. I felt utterly alone, in denial, and not understanding why he had to go so soon. The day of his funeral services, my mom was trying to figure out what to wear. And here comes Maggie, reminding me that it's native tradition to wear bright colors to celebrate a loved one's life. So I suggested that to my mom, that she wear the red dress because red was my dad's favorite color on her and my mom had also bought some red roses because that was the flower he always bought her. So I suggested to her she stand next to the roses as I shut the blinds so I could take a picture of her. When that film developed, there was a light next to her, a perfectly shaped silhouette of my father standing right next to my mother. She was astonished when she saw this, but also it was validating for her. He had told her six months prior that he was at peace, and he was. He never suffered. I tried to explain this to my mom, that he was waiting for her, and that nothing happens until we're ready, but she didn't want to hear any of that. We also tried to share the dreams that we both had, my sister and I, but again, that's not what she wanted to hear. When my father passed, there was a large part of my mom that passed with him. The only person she ever truly loved and trusted was gone. Two weeks after my father's funeral services, I found out I was pregnant. I knew in that moment of despair and uncertainty that my father's gift to me was my second son and the brother to his grandson so that they would always have each other, just like he tried to tell me. And nine months later, after my father passed, on February 3, 2005, one year to the day after John passed away, my second son was born on 2-3-05. In honor of some of the most amazing men I've ever known, we named our son Jonathan Charles after John and my dad.